Well, good morning and welcome. So you've heard our text read for today. I, I want to uh, just say up front that um, theologically today, in terms of doctrine and understanding and even culturally, this will be a, uh, a challenging sermon maybe to, uh, to wrap your mind around. And I'm going to work hard to uh, make it simple, but there are things in it that aren't that simple. And so I just want you to know up front, it may be a little bit more of a challenge in terms of as that. I know it has been for me. I was grateful for homecoming last week. Not so much that it was homecoming, but it gave me two weeks to get ready for this sermon. So you're going to get two hours instead of one. I'm playing, I'm playing. However, I am keenly aware of my need for the Lord in this moment to teach these texts that have been so, such a battleground in the last 200 years. And so I'm going to ask the Lord to be with us. Let's pray. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that your people would hear your voice, that your word would be illuminated in such a way that it would ring with truth for us, though many, perhaps even most, in our culture today would say that these words in the first and second chapters of Genesis are not real. They're myth, they're legend, they're fantasy. Father, as your people, we believe otherwise. I pray that you would help us see it and understand it in a much clearer and deeper way today through this time. And so may you be made much of as we look at your creation story. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's really, really important for the Christian to read Genesis 1 that David just read and to understand what, what genre of scripture, I mean, what genre of literature that this is growing out of. Conservative, Bible-believing, Orthodox Christians for the last 1,800 years, and you may be saying 1,800 years, hadn't it been like 2,000 years since Christ died? What I'm saying is that when Charles Darwin and other, others appeared on the scene, even before Darwin was his grandfather writing about evolution things begin to change the landscape begin to change scientists begin to say that the earth was not just old like thousands of years old but they begin to say the earth was like billions of years old and so biblical bible believing christians begin to re-examine some things what i want to say to you is genesis what we've read in the book itself is in the genre of historical narrative. What I mean by that is this. It's not poetry. It's, it's not fiction. It's not fantasy. It's not a fable. It's not a legend. It's not mythology. It is a historical narrative given by God himself edited by Moses 
under and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for 1,800 years, the Christian community, and let me add, with some heavyweights, intellectual heavyweights, have believed that that in, indeed is the case when we read Genesis 1, that it is historical narrative, that Adam and Eve were historical people, that they were the father and mother of all of creation. All of this has been under attack for the last 200 years. So this is the utmost importance to know when you're reading the Genesis account of creation. Genesis has been under attack mostly, I would say, by natural scientists. When we say natural, what I mean by that is those who look at the physical world and study it as scientists. The problem is, I believe that the scriptures teach, and I'm going to show you these scriptures in a moment, that the human being in their natural state rejects, and I would even use a word, even recoils from miracles and the supernatural. And so, because we recoil from what seems to be unnatural, supernatural, or even miraculous, it affects our worldview. It affects the way that we see things. And these scientists come to their studies with presuppositions. And it affects how they age the earth or how they think about how man got to the place where we are today. Those are very important things. Very important. We believe, those of us who know the Lord, there is a God, and He is one God in three persons. And it stands to reason that if there is a God, there's miracles. That He would do things that would be supernatural. By definition of being God, supernatural things would happen, like creation. He spoke, and out of nothing, the world and all the universe came into existence. That's one of the big problems with natural scientists. How could that possibly be? And we would say, there's a God, and he created it. So, I will say about our text today, Al Mohler, some of y'all wouldn't know that name, some of you would, president at Southern Seminary, uh, one of the leading Baptist seminaries in the, in the country, he shares that his mother was a nurse in an ER and was trained to do triage. So, for example, if someone is in the ER and they have a gunshot wound to their abdomen and another person is in the ER and they have an insect bite to their foot that's just kind of a little bit red, in a triage situation, you would take the gunshot wound every time over the insect bite, right? He writes about doctrinal triage. What do I mean by doctrinal triage? He says that there's three orders, first order, second order, and third order of doctrinal triage. The first order would go like this. If you do not believe that 
these, I mean, uh, if, you, if you do not believe these doctrines, you cannot be a true follower of Christ. That would be a first order doctrinal triage. What I mean by that is if you say, and you may be sitting here and you believe this today, there is way more than one way to God. I would say based on John 14, 6, that's a, a first order problem. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's Jesus speaking. Nobody comes through the Father but through Jesus. So a first order problem would be, or a first order issue would be that. A second order issue would be a very important doctrine in the Bible. And some people say, I don't, I don't believe in doctrine. I don't, I don't think doctrine's important. The truth is, every one of us have a doctrine. We just have, some of us have thought it through and some of us haven't. We all have doctrine. A second order doctrine is this. It's a very important doctrine, but you could still be a Christian and not agree on these truths. For example, we are Baptists. We believe that to be Baptist and to become a Christian, you should be baptized as a believer. But we have plenty of brothers and sisters in Christ that are in different denominations that think differently about baptism. And I believe, unless they believe that baptism, the actual act of going in the water or being sprinkling saves them, I believe that most of those brothers and sisters are truly believers. They just believe differently about the idea of baptism. That would be a second order in a doctrinal triage. First order would be, if you don't believe Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that's, that's a real problem. Second order would be, it's a very important doctrine, but you could still believe it and be a Christian. And the third order is this, it is a matter of real consequence, but it's not essential to saving faith. Some of the things that we're talking about in Genesis are going to be first order issues, some are second and some are third. Where I'm going to spend a good bit of time today is in, on a third order issue that's growing out of this text. It is a matter of real consequence. But you could believe differently than what I'm going to tell you that I believe and still be a Christian. You follow that? So I wanted to set that up. For example, a third order issue for me, and you may find this crazy and think I'm nuts. I do not believe that the Bible teaches evolution. I don't believe that. I believe and that scientists have figured out that microevolution called other, otherwise called adaptation, that if you put a, an animal or whatever in an environment long enough, they'll micro, small ways, they'll evolve and adapt to their environment. But I do not believe that in a primordial soup, some little atom grew into a fish that grew into something that walked up on the land, that grew into a cow, that grew into an ape, that turned into a human being. That's macroevolution. I do not believe the Bible teaches that, and here's why I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Look with me in your Bibles at Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 2, 7. In Genesis 2, 7, it says this, 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You do not see an evolutionary process happening there. You see God breathing into this dust and man becoming his creation like that in an instant. That's not evolution. That's God being the creator of man. That's what that is. So God created in an instant from dust. That's very inconsistent with evolutionary theory. Now, look with me at Genesis 1, verse 2. Genesis 1, verse 2, I think David so rightly said it. I think it can be found on page 1 of your Bible. I'm making it easy for you this morning. Um, sometimes, even me, the pastor, somebody will get up here and go, turn to Zephaniah, and I'm like, oh, no. I'm not sure I know where that one's at. All right, Genesis 1, 2. This is what it says. The earth was, and that word was is important. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. For about 1,800 years, when I, when I say orthodox, I want you to know what I'm saying, because there's orthodox church, there's orthodox this, when I say Orthodox Christianity, what I'm saying is for 1,800 years, Orthodox Christianity means generally it was accepted as right and true. Orthodox, generally it was accepted as right and true. So with that definition, let me say this. The church has viewed the word here for day, which is Y-O-M, yom in Hebrew. The church has viewed that word in our context as a literal 24-hour day. For about 1,800 years, the Orthodox Church read that text and they said, Yom, Hebrew word Yom means day, a literal 24-hour day. However, as new science and scientists over the last 200 years begin to study the earth and the universe, they began to report that the earth was not just old, as I said, but very old, billions of years old. So not thousands, but billions. And as an attempt to accommodate their findings, there have been at least three new theories added to the interpretation of Genesis 1 in the last 200 years. Three new theories have been uh, discovered, thought through, presented. The old theory, so the fourth theory, I'm going to get to it. The old theory was six literal 24-hour days. That's where everybody was for 1,800 years. Now, here's the reason I think this is important. The rub between people that believe that the earth is billions of years old and people that believe that the earth is thousands, anywhere from 6,000 to even as far as 100,000. The rub is, 
Where did death enter the picture? And what I mean by that is this. We see in Genesis 2.17, when Adam and Eve sinned, part of the sin curse was death. But what people that are teaching that the earth was billions of years old are saying is that death already existed. And we have fossils and dinosaurs and all these different things to prove that death was already in existence. So the Genesis account must be wrong. I argue in a moment the six-day creation view, and I'll tell you why I don't think that that's true. But let me first show you their argument, okay? The first of four, and I think there is a slide for this, is the gap theory. And there could be a slide that shows all four of them real quick so that you kind of see where we're going. Scholars have proposed four basic theories to explain the time in Genesis 1. There's what is called the gap theory. There's what is called the day age, like a day is an age, and an age could be thousands of years. And then there's what is called the framework theory, which has become very popular in the last 100 years, and I'll tell you why in a moment. And then there's the classic 1,800-year belief of six-day creation. Let's talk first about the gap theory. What I'm talking about here is basically, as scientists have said, the earth and the universe is really old. Theologians have gone back to Genesis and said, where can we find that? How can we show that maybe that's really true? Because it seems like you got to follow the evidence, right? The gap theory was made popular by the Schofield Reference Bible. Any of y'all ever have a Schofield Reference Bible? Yep. Very popular. Uh, came out in 1909. And uh, it had more to do with teaching the gap theory than any single Bible in the history of the world. It taught the gap theory, and I'm going to tell you how it taught it in just a minute. <clears throat> it also became the principal instrument for propagating what is called dispensational theology. Dispensation means ages, and what dispensational theology is, is it's in, in a most simplistic way, it basically says that God has related to man in different ages. And there's basically seven ages in the dispensational way of thinking. And God changes the way he relates. Another way to think about God in Scripture is covenantal theology. In other words, there's essential continuity in the way that God relates. He's just progressively revealing himself. It's not that he relates in different ways different ages, dispensations, but he's been relating to man consistently throughout. It's just now that we have more revelation than we used to have, we can see he's progressively revealing himself. So the Schofield Reference Bible taught this idea of the gap theory as well as dispensational theology. In verse 1 of Genesis 1, it reads... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, in the Schofield Reference Bible only, the only 
Bible you'll ever find that interprets this verb this way is the Schofield Reference Bible. In verse 2, it says, does anybody actually have one with you right now? Because you'll see it this way in the Bible. It says this, and the earth became without form and void. The word it's translated is H, in, in the Hebrew, it's H-A-Y-A-H. That's the word, H-A-Y-A-H. In every other translation throughout history, that word was translated, and the earth was. It was. Not it became, but it was. And the reason that's important in the gap theory is what they're saying is God created this world and then it fell into chaos. It became without form and void. And then billions of years later, we pick up in verse 2 and God creates the rest of new creation. So it's basically saying God had two creations and there was this gap. And the whole idea is to accommodate what scientists are seeing as billions of years. It's an attempt to accommodate that. Now, an entire generation was fed that theory through the Schofield Reference Bible. The only Bible to ever say it that way. I believe that Scripture nowhere explicitly teaches this. I think that this is a bogus attempt to explain the creation of God. That's my opinion. Remember, we're talking about third order doctrinal triage. You don't have to agree with me. You can be sitting there and go, no, I think the gap theory is exactly how God did it, and I still think you could go to heaven, okay? I'm just telling you what the theories are. The second theory is the day-age theory. It's different than the gap theory. According to this approach, <clears throat> each day in Genesis is an age. And the reason they say this is in 2 Peter 3.8. In 2 Peter 3.8, I think I have that on the screen, it says, maybe I don't. I don't. Michael says I don't. This is what it says. After all, one day in the Lord's sight is like a thousand years. In 2 Peter 3.8, it says, one day in the Lord's sight is like a thousand years. And so the day-age people grab verses like that, and they say, see, one day could be like a thousand years. That would explain why the world looks as old as it does. And, uh, and that is how they kind of explain that. However, the day-age theory, like the gap theory, ignores the immediate context as well as the larger biblical context. And when you are studying the Bible, one of the first things you should know, you don't have to be a seminary student to know this. They call it a principle, and, and if you want to go home with a big word, here's your word today, a principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is this idea of what it means to study the Bible. And one of the key principles in hermeneutics is to let Scripture interpret Scripture to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If, if a piece of Scripture is obscure and you don't know what it means, there's usually other Scripture that will teach you about that Scripture. 
And so in Hebrew, I mean, yes, in Genesis here, they are basically ignoring the immediate context as well as the larger context to come up with this day-age theory. It ignores the fact that each of the six days of creation exists in evening and morning. When, you, when David read through the text, it said, and it was evening and morning. I would venture to say, in 1,800 years of history, has interpreted that as to say, this is normal days. It was evening and then morning. The, the day-age theory ignores all that. It throws all of that out. If, if the word yom, which is day here, means something like 10 million years, then we need to put some kind of metaphor around evening and morning. You see? If, if we're going to say, if we're going to be consistent with the literary context, and we're going to say a day could be thousands of years, then we also need to say evening and morning can be thousands of years. And so, from a literary, exegetical, and linguistic perspective, I think the day-age theory is weak. I do. I don't think it's it. The day-age theory does tend to accommodate a theory of biological macroevolution that I think is also incompatible with the Bible. And I think the reason the day-age theory was dreamed up is to accommodate macroevolution. Macroevolution, in my opinion, is not just unbiblical, it's unscientific. And I'm going to tell you why I think so in a moment. I think, uh, let me, I'm going to hold off on that, but I will tell you why I think it's unscientific as well as unbiblical. The third, the third one is the framework, the framework hypothesis. The third approach to how to interpret these scriptures was started by a Dutch scholar named Nicholas Ritterboss. Nicholas Ritterboss. He argued that the literary form of the book's first few chapters are different from the literary form starting in chapter 12 through the rest of the book. And he basically said that this is poetry, that Genesis 1 and 2 are poetry. They're not, as I started the sermon saying, historical narrative. And so when you change the genre of the scripture, then you can begin to change the meaning of the scripture. And that is what he did. And that is what he did. In America, Ritterboss's work was widely disseminated by a man by the name of Meredith Klein. Now, when I practiced this sermon with my wife last night, I said, Meredith was a man. And she laughed and she said, Meredith's always a man. And I went, no, it's not. Meredith's a woman's name. She said, not historically. So I did not know that. I'm thinking the whole time I'm studying this week, Meredith is a woman. And she came up with this theory. And my wife said, no, not, oh, not a woman. Meredith is a man's name. Did y'all know Meredith's a man's name? I didn't know that. Um, so here, I want to circle back around to doctrinal triage. I am not talking, or excuse me, I am talking about a third order issue. First order, if you don't believe this, you couldn't be a Christian. Second order, it's pretty important, but we could disagree on it. Third order, 
This is not going to affect someone's salvation, but it's important because it has lots of tentacles to it that affect the way we believe. So, it is interesting to me that for 1,800 years we believed a certain way, and it's comparable to this. Follow this comparison. During the Reformation, and if you don't know when that was, think 1550, right in there. Martin Luther and those in the Reformation um, basically protested. They protested against the established belief that the Roman church had at the time. And they said, that's not right. So in there, there's this worldview that the Roman church was, was pushing forth with its leadership. And the Reformation and those in the Reformation said, that's not right. Now it appears in our society there's this second reformation needed because scientists are telling us as Christians that we must take what they're saying and apply it to our scriptures. In other words, what, what they're really saying is science is above the scripture. And what we're saying is no the scripture is above science, and the reason science can even exist is because God created a natural world, and we can study his natural world, but we must realize that because we're spiritual people, our flesh without Christ recoils against the supernatural. We want it to all be natural, and so the six-day creationists held by many brilliant minds believes that as the scriptures as you go through that a day is 24 hours and that that is essentially what the bible is teaching in genesis 1 think about this and hopefully this will this will kind of jolt you and I, i think i said this the other day but one of the biggest arguments against six day creation is this Look around you, Christian. Are you that foolish? Everything has the appearance of age, not just age, but really old age. Are you just sticking your head in the sand and acting like you don't see it? Here's, here's a, an interesting idea. God created Adam and Eve like that. And they were 25 years old or so. And if you or I would have walked up to Adam and Eve at that very moment and looked at them, we would have said, he's not 10 seconds old, he's 25. What I'm arguing is, is God created the universe with age. He created Adam and Eve with age. He created the plants with age. You know all those animals he created? They were all mature. They, were all, they all had age. Could God not have created the world with age? Could God not have created the universe with age? Yes, he could have. Matter of fact, some things simply require maturity to function properly. Think about it. The most functional, healthy people we know are mature people. 
When we're young and immature, we're not that healthy and functional. God knew, perhaps, that he needed to create with maturity for things to fun function properly. So I would hold me, knowing it's a third-order issue, to a classical biblical creationist idea that God did it out of nothing. He breathed it into existence, and I believe he could create the world with age. Now, let me say this. I recognize that scientists in the fields of geology, radiology, astrology, biology, and I read a book on the genome, the human genes and the DNA, um, they would all say to me and to you, if you believe what I believe, that uh, you've got to have, Clint, you've got to have intellectual integrity. You've got to follow the evidence. Wherever it takes you, you've got to follow the evidence. My argument from Genesis is that a plain reading of this text, for 1,800 years, some brilliant people have said, six-hour days. I'm going to lean with them. I don't think they were idiots. Look at um, Exodus 20.11. Exodus 20.11. Moses is writing this as well. He wrote the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But here he would have said something different if it wasn't a 24-hour day. Look what he says. Moses says in Exodus 20, 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. He says right there, he made it in six days. If, if it was supposed to be something else, I think Moses would have had to say, in six ages he made heaven and earth. But he says six days. A natural reading of the text is 24-hour days. Now, what about the earth looking old? What's, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. Look at Romans 8.22. Romans 8.22. Most people probably don't look at this text to make this point, but I want you to see this. In Romans 8.22, Paul is speaking to the Romans, and this is what he says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why is creation groaning? It is groaning because of the fall. And scientists that come to their study with presuppositions do not take into account and this is the phrase that I hope you get, and I don't know if I have it on a slide. But the age that we see in the universe is accounted for in the trauma of the fall, the flood, and sin. Could it be that the age that they're seeing could be accounted for from the trauma of the fall, the flood, and, the, and sin? Because when natural scientists look at the universe... They don't, they don't believe in sin. They don't believe in the fall. They don't believe in the flood. They have to come up with another way to explain it through natural science. But as a believer, 
We know, I know from my own experience, 21 years before I was a Christian, the stuff that I was doing was going to kill me. It was going to age me long before I had to be old. But when Christ liberated me and gave me a chance to live for Him and not my sin, things changed. So I think that scientists look at the universe with a bias. They have a presupposition. They don't believe in the fall. They don't believe in sinful man. They don't believe it affects the world that we live in. They think the flood is a laughable thing. Yet, it is interesting, it can account for much of the geological rock formations attributed to old earth accounts. Look with me at Romans. You're already there. Romans 8, 7, and 8 to make my point about non-Christian scientists looking at our world. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. What it means by set on the flesh is just they do not have the Holy Spirit. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Y'all, that is a promise from the Word of God. Someone that doesn't know the, uh, Christ, their mind is hostile to Him. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what the Bible says. So why would secular non-Christian scientists think the way they think? The Bible gives us pretty clear answers. So the issue is one of faith. Is Jesus who he says he is? Did God do what he said he did? Now, right now I'm going to say, you don't have to believe like I believe that, it, that I think, I think, I lean that the earth is younger, that God created with age. You don't have to believe that. But you do have to believe that God created, not some evolutionary process, that, well, there are evolutionary theists, people that believe that God did it through evolution. So you could believe that. But ultimately, Jesus is the only Savior for our sins. And we must place our faith in Him to be saved from our rebellion against a holy God. Now, I want to read to you a quote that and I'll close pretty much with this. Um, R.C. Sproul is a theologian, scholar, and pastor. And this is what he said. He, he just died a couple of years ago, I think. But I, I read his books and I listened to almost everything he taught at, at one point in my life. He said this about this idea. He said, for most of my teaching career, which he taught at a seminary, there it is. I considered the framework hypothesis, the third one that we talked about, to be a possibility. But I have now changed my mind. I now hold to a literal six-day creation, the fourth alternative and the traditional one. Genesis says that God created the universe and everything in it in 24-hour periods. According to the Reformation hermeneutic, which we talked about, the first option is to follow the plain sense of the text. 
One must do a great deal of hermeneutical gymnastics to escape the plain meaning of Genesis 1. Men do not want to believe in God in their natural state. So they create a God that they can live with or push him out of their worldview altogether. And they say, there can be no God. And once you do that, you must create a structure like Darwin that eliminates God and allows for you to figure out some origin of life. They shove God off in every imaginable way, including their science. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Let me say, there are massive problems for the evolutionist, not just the creationist, when it comes to the fossil records. Do you know that they say it took billions of years for these, for humans to evolve? But we have almost literally no bones for those transition phases. We have bones for apes. We have bones for humans. Where are the bones? Same thing with the other animals. Where are the bones? I'm not just saying this. I'm saying secular, non-Christian biologists will tell you this. There's a huge fossil record problem with evolution. They also have real problems with the origin of life. They have real problems with the origin of matter. Where did it originally start? And then if you want to just get into the, well, they have problems with the origin of energy. And then if you want to get into the philosophical, they have no answer for the meaning of life. So, both the creationists and the evolutionists have the same earth and universe, but they land on other sides. There is a slide for that, Michael. I thought it was actually kind of funny. Um, this is evidence for creation, and on the other side, this is evidence for evolution. And that's kind of what's going on. As we're looking at the same facts, coming to different conclusions. You know why that is? Because man, apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, will not surrender to a holy God. The question is, will you? Have you? You don't have to believe everything I said about the way the world was created. But you do have to believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And if you can believe that and repent of your sins, He can be yours today.